We do welcome each one to uh, the Bible class this morning. Uh, trusting the Lord uh, will be pleased to meet with us and bless us as we spend uh, some time uh, considering His Word. Uh, let us uh, unite together in prayer and let us seek the Lord as we come uh, to His Word. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for Thy goodness and grace toward us. We thank Thee that Thou would be pleased to come and to meet with us this day. And we thank Thee for the Sabbath, and that day that is set aside to spend with Thee, to meet with Thee. And Father, we pray that we would have that required rest today, not merely for body, but also for our souls. May we rest in Christ. And Father, as we come to consider Thy Word and to take up the subject again that we considered last time, we pray that Thou would open our eyes to Thy truth, that Thou would open our hearts to Thy truth, and that we would lay up Thy Word within our hearts and practice it within our lives. Bless us, we pray, do us good, and we ask of Thee for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to turn to two passages of Scripture this morning. Firstly, the book of James, <clears throat> the epistle of James, and the chapter 1. Epistle of James, uh, the chapter 1, and the verse number 21. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. And then we'll turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we'll read uh, just the verse 105 this morning. Psalm 119, verse 105, it says there, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Several weeks ago, uh, we continued our consideration of the doctrine of Scripture by commencing a practical examination of the Puritans and Scripture. The Puritans lived in England, although they had influence outside of England, and there were similar movements in Scotland, in Holland, and in America from the late 1500s through to the early 1700s, give or take several years for each of those locations. But they were a group of believers and pastors and teachers who treasured Scripture and desired to reform the established church in a further way, bringing their beliefs and their practices to be more aligned with the Word of God. And as we said last time in our next number of studies, I want to take time to consider the Puritans in Scripture and to understand something of what they believed and taught regarding the Word of God, and certainly applying that practically to ourselves. So, last time we considered that the Puritans loved Scripture. 
The Puritans loved Scripture. Joel Beakey wrote this, he said, and we quoted this last time, if you read the Puritans regularly, their Bible-centeredness will become contagious. And how true that is. When you read these men and you see how they centered their beliefs and they centered their teaching and they centered their practical application of the Word on Scripture, it's contagious. Your heart is thrilled as you read it. I was reading through this morning again some of George Swinnick on the Word of God. We'll come to that in a few moments. We considered that, I think, some time ago, if I remember rightly. I either preached it here or in Cloverdale. I think I did preach some of that here. And it's thrilling how he deals with the Word of God and how he brings out how we are to approach the study of Scripture and the hearing of Scripture and the reading of Scripture. And so we considered Thomas Manton's sermon on Psalm 119, verse 97. And there the psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And dear believers, we saw a few weeks ago, we are to love the law of God. We're to love the Word of God. We're to desire it. We're to treasure it. And Puritanism was very much a movement that was founded on Scripture and love for the Word of God. There is a book that is a collection of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. And one of the prayers speaks about the Word of God, and it says, If I oppose thy word, I oppose my Lord when he is most near. If I receive thy word, I receive my Lord wherein he is nigh. O thou who hast the hearts of all men in thine hand, form my heart according to thy word. According to the image of thy Son, Christ the Word, and His Word be my strength and comfort. O thou who hast the hearts of all men in thine hand, form my heart according to thy Word. And that is the prayer that they had. And when you read their writings on Scripture and on the Word itself, you see that. They desired the Word of God to form their hearts, to, as it were, be that great foundation upon which their lives were built and how they interacted as they said, and we'll come to this in a moment, in the catechism. We are to lay the Word of God in our hearts. We are to take it in. But it's not merely to be a head knowledge in the head, but it's to be a heart knowledge, and that heart knowledge has to do something. It doesn't just sit there and rest there and do nothing, but that heart knowledge is to be practiced in our lives. And so I want us to consider this morning, continuing this thought of the Puritans in Scripture, that secondly, the Puritans believed in the necessity of Scripture for Christian living. The Puritans believed in the necessity of Scripture for Christian living. And in the days prior to the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had limited the Scriptures to the Latin language. They tried to uh, control then the priests and control the people through their control of the priests. But the Reformers believed that the Word of God should be accessible. We don't come to the priest and receive something of the Word of God that he may twist and change and use to promote Catholicism, but the Word of God should be accessible to us all. 
And the Puritans drove home that truth. They practiced that principle. So did the Reformers, because the Word of God was translated in the language of the people. And the Puritans then drove home from the translations that they had of the Word of God that the Scripture was to be read and studied and applied in our lives. And the shorter catechism, or the larger catechism, asked the question, is the Word of God to be read by all? And it says, although all are not to be permitted to read the Word of God publicly to the congregation, and that sets aside the, the elders, the ministers, those who are to spiritually lead the congregation in worship and preaching, etc., Yet all sorts of people are bound to read it apart by themselves and with their families, to which end the Holy Scriptures are to be translated out of the original into vulgar languages, vulgar meaning the common language of the people. And as a side note, uh, the next question says, how is the Word of God to be read? The Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very Word of God and that He only can enable us to understand them with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. We're not to come to the Word of God. As it were, when we read that verse, Psalm 119, verse 105, when we read that verse, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we say amen, and we go on our merry way in our daily activities, forgetting what the Word said, not thinking upon the Word. We've done our reading, we've moved on, and we never think of it again. How often that can happen? The larger catechism teaches us that we're to read not merely the minister or the one leading the worship, but we ourselves are to read the Scripture with a high and reverent esteem. When we come to that verse, Psalm 119, verse 105. And applying the catechism to that, we see we're to read this verse with a high esteem. God has given it to us. God is directing us. God is teaching us about His Word through this particular verse. It is the very Word of God. And therefore, we need the help of God to understand. It may seem a very simple verse, but there are great depths here, and we need the, the, we need the Lord to help us to understand it, to believe it, uh, to see what He is teaching us through this verse, and with diligence and attention and with meditation and application and self-denial and prayer to apply it to ourselves. So the Word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We're to think upon that. What does that mean? What does that mean to you and I? How are we to live our life in light of what God is teaching in that verse? Well, the Word of God is to be central. We can meditate upon the centrality of God's Word. We can meditate that it is a light and a lamp to us. Our way seems dark. What lies ahead we do not know. But the Word of God is that lamp, a light. It directs our path. It directs our path. I remember one time going to the prayer meeting where we used to live in Dungannon, and we lived literally, I suppose, a three-minute walk from the church. You could cut that down to about 45 seconds if you sprinted. And I was about a minute to go to the prayer meeting, and so I grabbed my Bible, I went out the door, I ran down our drive, and it was on the very edge of the town, so we had a field behind us, then the first housing in the town, and then fields in front of us, and the church was over this way somewhere. And so I ran down our driveway, 
absolutely sprinting. I could do that in those days. And it was dark, and I felt the wind rushing past me. I don't know what speed I was going, 50 miles an hour, or whatever it might have been. And I was racing down, and suddenly I saw a shadow, but it was too late. And I crashed into our gates, and it hurt. The farmer had been moving his cattle, and he moved them up and down the road at times. And while that gate was shut or open earlier, he had shut it. And in the dark, I didn't see it. And I was limping for a week or more uh, because uh, of what had happened. There was blood and everything. It was, it, was, it was sore. But the problem was, yes, the farmer had shut the gate and not opened it again. But there was no light. You couldn't see. There's no light on at the side of the house. There was no light in the street. The light on the street started further down. I couldn't see in the very last moment there was a shadow, but it was too late. It was too late. And the Word of God is light because we go on our path. We stumble. We, we face sin on every hand. And we, with the Word of God, we can see that. We can see the path that we're to go. The Word of God warns us about that sin that will or we will crash into it, or it'll crash into us. It warns us. And when we think on this verse, we meditate on this verse, we understand its meaning. The Word of God is an essential light for us in order to help us and enable us to live as believers. And we're to apply that to our lives. We may need to deny ourselves. We have things we want to do, but the Word of God needs to take priority, the self-denial then. And how can we do all this in our own strength? No, we pray. We pray. And the Word of God is then applied to us. We read it in a way in which we think upon it, and we pray over it, and we apply it to our lives. And that is very, very different than simply reading the verse and moving on. We glean something out of it we glean something out of it. And that was an easy verse to do that with, but there are times it is more difficult. It is a difficult thing to receive the Word of God. It is a difficult thing sometimes to meditate upon it. It's not an easy thing. We need diligence. We need uh, to persevere in these things. The Scottish Puritan Thomas Boston wrote of the necessity of Scripture, and he uh, spoke about it being a necessity. He says the papists deny the necessity of Scripture, but he said that the written Word is necessary for preserving doctrine for corruption in times of apostasy, for the better propagating of truth. He said the apostles could not reach all nations with their voices, but their writings could. And he spoke about the written Word. If the written Word were wanting, the church would have nowhere to look but to uncertain traditions. And therefore, the Word is a necessity. And it is a necessity for us because God teaches us from His precious Word. It is a sufficient rule for all men. It's not merely a sufficient rule for the church, not merely a sufficient rule for those who preach or lead in the church of Christ, but it is a sufficient rule for every believer, for every believer. Thomas Boston spoke about it being a clear rule, a perfect rule, the only rule, and he exhorted us to read the Word of God. So, there was a belief by the Puritans that Scripture was necessary and Scripture ought to be applied to our lives. Richard Baxter said that the reading of the Word of God and the application of it, as well as in good books, 
It means to possess the mind with sound, orderly, and working apprehensions of God and His holy truths. And you see that when we come to Scripture, Scripture is vital for our Christian living. It is absolutely essential. And I want to leave three thoughts with you. Hopefully, we will have time to consider these. But firstly, we have the importance of reading and hearing the Word. If we are to apply the Word of God to our Christian lives and Christian living, we are to hear it and we are to read it. It is through the Word of God that we learn more of Christ. George Swinnick wrote a treatise entitled The Christian Man's Calling. I think I did uh, speak about uh, some of this at some stage, and so we will we'll move through uh, some of this uh, a little briefer, perhaps. But he speaks in uh, this treatise about the duty of the Christian in hearing. He's setting uh, down what is a godly man, how the godly man is to behave, and therefore the godly man has a duty in hearing the Word of God, a duty in obeying the Word of God. He <coughs> spoke about the Word of God, and this is the quotation I use time and time again. The Word of God is a spring of living water, a deep mine of costly treasure, a table furnished with all sorts of food. And he goes on, a garden wherein is a variety of pleasant fruits, the church's charter, containing all her privileges and deeds, manifesting her title to the purchased possession. He speaks of the saint. If the saint be afflicted, he can hold his head above water and keep him from sinking when the billows go over his soul. He speaks about the Word being of unspeakable truth, unspeakable worth. God hath deposited as a special treasure into the hands of the children of men. And so, at the very start of dealing with the importance of reading and hearing the Word of God, he elevates Scripture. He esteems Scripture. Oh, that we would esteem Scripture, that we would have it in that reverent place within our lives. He says, But reader, if thou art a child of God, I doubt not, but thou delightest to look into thy Father's will. Do we delight to look into the Father's will, delight to look into Scripture? Oh, how marvelous this treasure is. Oh, how wonderful it is. Do we desire to look into it? Swinnick moves on, and he speaks about three particular aspects, preparing ourselves for the Word, our carriage at the Word. He's not speaking about bringing carriages and horses into the church and sitting in them while the Word of God is preached. He's speaking about our, uh, how we attend ourselves during the Word of God, how we carry ourselves when we hear and read the Word of God. And then he deals with our behavior after it. But in regard to preparing for it, he speaks about emptying thine heart of evil frames and prejudice. He says, if the stomach be clogged with filth and phlegm, it cannot digest our food. And so, if we come with a sinful heart, we come with grudges, we come uh, with all sorts of manner of issues that have been created within our hearts because of sin, sinful attitudes, living in sin, that is not the preparation we ought to have in coming to the Word of God. 
there's an importance in hearing it. There's an importance in reading it. And we need to pray that our hearts would be emptied of sin, emptied of evil that will seek to, as it were, take away the Word of God. He deals as well with a second matter, before thou goest to hear, labor to affect thine heart with the necessity, excellency, and efficacy of the Word. In other words, when we come to read or hear the Word of God, let us bear in mind how wonderful it is, how excellent it is, how necessary it is for us, how excellent it is, how we must listen because we need it. He speaks about praying that God would bless it to us. Dear believer, if you pray that God would bless His Word, that as you come to the house of God, as you come to read His Word, that He would apply it to your hearts. He would bless it. He would bless it. That He would give you something from His Word, that He would feed your soul from it. There's an importance here of reading and hearing God's Word, but we must pray. We must pray. He deals again with the duty in hearing, our carriage at the Word of God. He says, when we come to that, set ourselves seriously as in the presence of God. God is setting before thee His Word. He's offering to thee life or death, blessing or cursing, His infinite favor or fury, heaven or hell. And friends, when said, are these things to be jested with? Are we to treat them trivially? No, we are not. We're to take it seriously, whether we are a child of God or not. The preaching and reading of God's Word is to be taken seriously by us because it is God's Word. And on that thought, we have everything I think we've considered. We have the inspiration of God's Word, the sufficiency of God's Word, the inerrant veracity of God's Word, and many other matters that we've considered during the series. These things set for us the seriousness of being in the presence of God, listening to His Word. We're to apply the Word to our own soul. We're to listen and learn from it and pray that God would apply it to us. We are to let the Word come with authority and power to our conscience. Our souls are sinful. Our souls are wicked. We need this Word. We need our conscience to hear the Word of God. It is necessary for us. The Word of God is preached to many, but yet for many it is not profitable because they do not listen as they ought to listen. Oh, how we ought to carry ourselves well when we come to the house of God to listen to the Word, praying for ourselves, praying for the preacher, praying for others, praying for others. Yes, there's a duty in the preacher. There's a duty in the hearer, and that comes together in the preaching of the Word. And we're dealing with the duty of hearers this morning. But let us come seeking God's Word, praying that He would bless as His Word is proclaimed. And then there is a duty after the hearing that Swinnick deals with. And all of this builds up the importance of hearing and reading the Word of God. He speaks about praying praying for the blessing of the Word. The seed is sown. Praying God would take that seed that would grow within our hearts. It would bring forth fruit, that that Word would not be in vain. He says as well, we're to give thanksgiving. We're to thank the Lord for this. He says it's a distinguishing mercy. 
It's a precious treasure, the Word of God. Let's thank the Lord for His truth to our hearts. Thank the Lord for His truth to our hearts. And we're to practice it. We're to practice it. We're not to listen in vain, but we are to practice it. And of course, we'll consider that in a moment. And there's many more things we could say here. But let us take the Word of God. Let us treat it seriously. Let us listen. It's a spiritual word. We don't come to Scripture the same way we would lift the latest novel or, or a magazine or a newspaper and read it. We come to Scripture believing that God will feed our souls through His Word. And then secondly, I want you to consider the importance of catechizing based upon the Word. The importance of catechizing based upon the Word. The Puritans believed in the importance of catechizing their church members and their children. Some would say that this is a moving away from teaching Scripture to teaching men's opinions, because they will say that confessions and catechisms are the mere opinions of men. Of course, we would reject that because we see in the Westminster Shorty Catechism, we see in other catechisms and confessions a systematic summary, a systematic teaching of what the Word of God says. And so, when we consider the catechism, it brings together what Scripture says on certain subjects, backed up by Scripture proofs. And the Puritans believed in the importance of reinforcing the ministry of the Word of God through the regular instruction of catechisms, a simple format of questions and answers. And this came over from the, from the Reformation period, and there are various Reformation catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism, I believe Luther wrote a catechism as well, and many others, several Puritans, pen catechisms. Uh, John Cotton entitled his uh, catechisms, Milk for Babes, drawn out of both testaments. So, his desire was that the babes, the spiritual babes in Christ, would be taught through catechizing. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, we see themes that we can find in many of these catechisms. The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments, all these things are dealt with because of their importance. And so, throughout church life and in the home, during the visit of the pastor, there was a catechizing of believers. This catechizing was supplemented by the preaching ministry that explained the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, helping the young especially to commit to memory what Scripture taught, helping in their understanding of the truths of God's Word, helping parents to teach their own children, and helping them to defend their faith against error. And the learning of a catechism was a big part of knowing what you believe. It is said that the Puritans did not look for quick and easy conversions. They were committed to building up lifelong believers whose hearts and minds, wills and affections were one to the service of Christ. Oh, how many look for quick and easy conversions. There's a gospel mission here, an evangelistic event here, and 20 people put their hands up and were converted, and 50 here and 100 here, and maybe there's a big campaign, and 1,000 people trust Christ. How many of them continue? How many of them are committed believers? How many of them are truly saved? It is so easy 
to push individuals to quick and easy conversions, but they're to be built up, and the Puritans focused on that. Yes, there was evangelism, but the converts were to be built up in hearts and in minds, wills and affections to be won to the service of Christ. Catechisms were used to enhance family worship, giving fathers a greater understanding of truth. It was used to examine the spiritual condition of the congregation. Richard Baxter spent a lot of time catechizing believers in their own homes. It was an important part of his pastoral care. And before you say, well, that would be great if a pastor came and he catechized my children, I didn't have to do that. He was catechizing the adults as well. The catechizing that the Puritans believed in was not just for those who were five, six, seven, eight, nine years of age. It was for the adults as well. The children memorized the shorter catechism, but there was the larger catechism. And when we think of the great truths contained in all of those catechisms, how great it is to memorize these things. Richard Greenham said that the catechism built up the Reformed Church and did serious damage to the Roman Catholic Church. And we can think of the words of Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, "'Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days.'" Thomas Manton wrote, "'How careful should ministers and parents be to train up young ones while they are yet pliable, and like wax capable of any form and impression, in the knowledge and fear of God, and betimes to instill the principle of our most holy faith, as they are drawn into a short sum in catechisms, and so altogether laid in the view of conscience. And so catechisms played this vital role in the process of maturing believers in the truth of God. And in some ways, that is still a very important way of learning and teaching what Scripture believes. Many say it is children who must learn and memorize. How many of us have picked up the shorter catechism or the larger catechism, or the confession of faith, or a simple document from church history, and read it just to learn something more of the teaching of Scripture. It's a treasure trove of Reformed doctrine. Perhaps the catechism is not the first reading material that comes to mind when you decide to read something of theology. But dear believer, when we think of our Christian living and that being built upon the truths and doctrines of God's Word, knowing and understanding what we believe as seen in the catechisms that are based upon the Word of God is a good tool for us to use. I challenge you to pick it up, to download it, to read it, not to see it merely as a tool for teaching children, but something that you can benefit from as well. In college for our theology exams, we had to memorize certain portions of the catechism, it wasn't a larger catechism, thankfully, but my first exam, we had to learn several catechisms. I remember going down into the student's kitchen. The night before the exam, I had 11, 12 catechisms to learn. I hadn't looked at them. I went, I made some coffee, and as I drunk that in the student's kitchen over about 15 minutes, I came back up, I knew all my catechisms. It took 15 minutes. And that's not because of how smart I may or may not be. It's nothing to do with that. As a child, I had learned those catechisms. And I learned them a few times because when we went to Wales, 
I was in the oldest Sunday school class, though I was about 10 years of age, and we were learning the Shorter Catechism, so I learned those catechisms. And then when we moved a few years later to England, we started again because it was a new church plant, and I started again learning the same catechisms. And then when I came uh, to Northern Ireland again, uh, we did the examination at 15 years of age, reciting all 107 catechisms. So those 15 minutes in the kitchen, they were not learning. It was just bringing back to my memory what had been learned those years ago. And that's why it took only 15 minutes, because over the years, 10 years of age, 12 years of age, 15 years of age, I had went over them and over them and over them. And I just needed a few minutes to remember every, every single one. <coughs> I was only 11 or 12. And the point of that is that there was a lasting effect in memorizing catechisms. And whether we memorize Scripture or we memorize catechisms, there's a great blessing to be had in knowing that material. There's a great blessing to be had later on. I was in college with students who spent hours learning the very same catechisms because as a child they did not have that privilege of learning what I had learned. And so whether we're young, whether we're older in years, memorization of Scripture, memorization of catechisms is a very good thing. We're learning the truth. We're thinking upon the truth. It's important to know what the catechism believes. My brother had a problem when he was 10, 11 years of age. He was learning catechisms. He couldn't focus his mind upon them because he hadn't a clue what they meant. He was told to learn and to memorize them, but he didn't want to learn and memorize something. He had no idea what it meant. But once it was explained to him what the truths meant, it was much easier much easier. He did that exam as well. He recited them all. He had to learn them again for college, and learning them as a child is a great benefit. But let us not merely learn the truths, but let us understand what they mean, because it affects our knowledge of God. That in turn, as we come to our last point here very quickly, we see the importance of receiving and doing the Word of God. We build the truth up inside us. We lay it in our hearts, but it must be practiced in our lives. And I want you to turn back to James. <clears throat> James chapter 1. <clears throat> and the Puritans believe strongly in not only receiving, but doing the Word of God. And when we think of Greek Christians, we often think of Charles Spurgeon. We think of William Curry, the Apostle Paul. We think of Peter and James and John and John Owen and John Knox and John Calvin and John Huss and there's probably other Johns as well, Martin Luther and many others, godly servants of God. Uh, but if we keep our finger in James and move uh, back to Acts chapter 9 just for a moment, uh, we see something important here in Acts chapter 9 and the verse number 36. Now, there was a chopper, a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And then we find that she died, and uh, there was mourning and weeping within the church of Christ. When we look at this passage, there's a lady, Dorcas, Tabitha. Who is she? What's the importance about her? She's just a lady in the church. Let's go back to Paul. Paul has just been converted, Saul of Tarshish. Let's move back to him. What's Peter doing at this point in time? 
You know, and all the preaching he was doing, what about the other apostles? But here we find this lady, this woman. She's a simple lady who believed in Christ. And what do we find? She was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did as a result of faith, not to earn faith. Good works is a fruit of faith. And the church mourned her death because of the blessing and godliness and Christian living that she was to them. There's an obvious, obvious application to us here, vital for us to consider. If we were to pass away like this lady, to be no longer within the church of Christ, would anybody notice? Would anybody weep? This lady blessed the church with all that she did. She's significant because she wasn't a preacher. She wasn't a missionary. She didn't write books of theology. She was a simple Christian lady who was part of the local church, who received the Word of God and practiced the Word of God because that's where her good works and her alms deeds came from. She practiced the Word in godly living for Christ, and that's what every one of us ought to do, receive and do the Word of God. She did not go out and preach the Word as Paul preached the Word. She did not preach as Peter or anybody else. She just lived simply. And that's an encouragement for us all, an example for us to receive God's Word and to simply do it as a believer. But coming back to James, and we find that the Word of God is to be received, verse 21. It's to be received with meekness. It's to be engrafted and planted into us. And as verse 22 says, but be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. So our lives are to be spent receiving and doing the Word of God, and the Puritans taught that. In the Shorter Catechism, question 90, how is the Word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? I'm thinking of salvation, but we can also think of sanctification here as well, that the Word of God may become effectual to salvation. We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. That's where that comes from. And again, we can Trace that back to James 1, verse 22. But be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And Scripture here gives us a command that is not an option. It is a command to receive the Word, to do the Word, to receive with meekness the engrafted Word, and to do the Word. And as believers, that is what we are to do. What is our duty before God? Well, this is one of them, to receive His Word, to have it implanted in our hearts, and to do it, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. One of the Puritans said to feed upon the Word, feed upon the Word. And we see this thought of feeding in Scripture. The Savior said to Peter, feed my sheep. Paul said to the church at Ephesus to feed the flock. And that is the aim and the purpose of the ministry of the Word, to feed the sheep, to feed them according to the Word. C.H. Spurgeon preached a sermon on feeding on the Word. He spoke about attending and hearkening diligently that the God-breathed truth may be nutriment to our souls. He said that food is of no use till it is eaten, but to eat we must believe. We're to believe the Word. We're to believe Christ. 
We're to enter that food, that Word, into the deepest parts of our body. We're to digest upon it and meditate upon it and pray over it as we've considered. We're to trust upon Christ and His Word, that that Word, like food we have for breakfast that sustains us throughout the day, that that Word is sufficient for strength. And so the Word of God must teach us and instruct us and convict us and be of profit to us. Matthew Poole said that receiving the Word of God is difficult, not only into your heads by by knowledge, but into your hearts by faith. And James here, in the opening words of verse 21, speaks about receiving or laying apart all filthiness, laying apart the sin, those things that can easily beset us, and receiving with meekness, not weakness, meekness, receiving the Word with humility, with a humble attitude, that Word which is able to save our souls, and then doing that Word doing that word. Teaching leads to practice. Good teaching leads to good practice. And dear believer, we are to receive that good teaching and practice that good teaching. When we think about a car, someone jumps into a car, they've no idea. We'll take someone from the Victorian period. They come to today, not that time travel exists, but we put them here for the purpose of this illustration. They haven't a clue what a car is. They haven't a clue how to move it, and they look at it, uh, they decide they'll push a few levers or whatever, turn it on, it starts moving. They've no idea what the road is or what the signals are or how you are to stop or what lane you're to be in. It will be an absolute disaster. They haven't a clue. And dear believer, in our lives, if we have no experience of the Word of God, it will be like that. When I first got behind the wheel of a car, I knew what side of the road to drive on, the left side of the road. No one worldwide is the right side of the road. It's everywhere else drives on the wrong side. Uh, But I drove on the left side of the road. I knew there was a signal. I knew there was a steering wheel. I knew there was a clutch that I had to press in order to change the gears. I came back from Australia after a year driving an automatic. I stole the car several times in my first hour driving back in Northern Ireland because I forgot to press the clutch because I hadn't done so an entire year. And so I think if I ever go back, I'm going to have to drive an automatic because it's just too far gone now to go back to a clutch. But I understood the principles. There's the road, there's the lane, you stop at a red light. And why did I understand that? Because over the years I had observed. I'd observed my parents driving, walking down the street. I had observed cars on the road. I had observed the lights. I knew what it was all about. I'd observed these things. And when we come to the Word of God and doing the Word of God, as young believers, we look at children or we look at adults. And we see godly men who do things a certain way. Why? Because they've received the Word and they've practiced it in in their lives. And we look at them and we observe them. And we know something about living a godly life. When I get got behind the wheel of that car. I knew something through observation, but also I would learn specifically from my instructor. He told me specifically what I had to do and how to do it. And it's the same with the Word of God. We learn through observing others, but we must learn specifically from God's Word. It's not enough to look at the leadership of the church or to godly family members in order to be a Christian. That does not save. That does not 
help us. It may assist us, but we need to be found in the Word ourselves, being taught specifically. We must heed it. We must pray over it. Why? So that we can practice the Word of God. There's much more we could say here, but the Puritans firmly believed in hearing the Word, in receiving the Word, in doing the Word. May we do so for the glory of God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We pray that Thou would bless it to us today, and we do remember the services to follow. We do pray for Thy blessing to be upon them. We pray, Father, that Thy name would be glorified, and we pray Thou would bless the preaching of Thy truth. And do us good this day, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.